I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11 as we continue through the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, we'll be there and we'll be spending some time in the Gospel of John tonight as well. We started the book of Matthew maybe two years ago? Has it been that long? Yeah. And we're making great time. We're doing fantastic. <laughs> two more years. When we started uh, in Matthew, we met a man named John the Baptist. And a lot has changed from that time till we get to chapter 11, so I want to get you caught up so you're not surprised. He's in prison. We last saw him baptizing Jesus, and now in chapter 11 we're going to find him in prison. And so I wanted to kind of catch you up on why. Uh, because I believe, raise your hand if you were here two years ago when we talked about John the Baptist. That's why i got to catch you up. Uh, John the Baptist was a, really a prophet, and we're going to see Jesus call him a prophet. Uh, a couple years ago, before we were in Matthew, if you can remember back then, we were in Malachi, and Jesus is going to reference Malachi when he says he was the Elijah that is to come, uh, coming to tell people that Jesus was coming. And so John is living out in the wilderness as prophets did at that time. He is dressed in camel hair. He eats honey and locusts. He is uh, not your typical person that people are flocking out. People at that time did not want to go out to the wilderness in general, but they are going out to see him. Uh, Herod the Great, who we talked about at one point, when he died, he had left it. His, his kingdom was broken up into four areas, and his one son, Herod Agrippa, was over Galilee and that kind of the region of Israel. And Herod Agrippa, where John the Baptist was functioning, uh, sees a man, and this is at a time, as we talked two weeks ago, where there was constant rebellions popping up against the Roman government, against the government. Uh, they were continually having to squelch these problems of the zealots and the different groups repeatedly. And he sees John the Baptist, and he is gaining a following that is getting larger and larger. So John the Baptist, this is not uh, biblical, but Herod Agrippa goes to Rome uh, to, for whatever government proceedings that needed to happen, and he basically steals his brother's wife, and he comes back to uh, his fortress in this area of what is now Israel, and he gets rid of his wife, and he takes his, what was his sister-in-law as his wife. So John, being God's prophet, meaning that he is speaking the truth of what God has given him, confronts them on this. And I don't think Herod Agrippa appreciated it, but I know his new wife, former sister-in-law, really didn't appreciate it. So whether it was for that, whether it was because he had this following, they put him in prison. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what happened. Since we've been talking about graphic ways to die the last couple of weeks, I figured I'd add another one. John the Baptist um, is in prison. We're going to see him here, and I think in Matthew 16, what ends up happening is... Herod Agrippa's new wife, former sister-in-law, really hates him. And so they have this party, and she talks her daughter into doing a seductive dance for Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa says, hey, whatever you want, I will give you. And so she asks her mom, hey, what should I ask for? And she says, John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. And so they behead John the Baptist and literally bring his head into this uh, party um, to mock and to scorn uh, so that is what happens to John the Baptist, which I just wanted to catch you up on as well in case you didn't know. So we are in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1. 
My eyes really aren't as bad as they look when I'm reading from the Bible, by the way. I'm not that old. I was very mocked last week. I won't say by who, but I've seen the text messages, and I know you're out there. I have small print Bible. The lighting isn't great. I'll switch Bibles. I meant to do it this week and forgot. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let him hear. So one of the big questions, and there's different theories um, that I'll discuss briefly, but that's not where we're going to spend most of our time this evening, is why was John questioning if Jesus was the Messiah? What had happened that John, who, when we go back, had, and we'll see this tonight, who knew Jesus, knew who he was, was related to him, who, when he sees him, blurts out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is now in prison, and he's questioning if Jesus really was the Messiah. And there's different theories out there. Uh, Was he depressed? Uh, was he in prison and he had literally was going through a depression while he's in prison and he's, and he's doubting who Jesus is? Uh, was he wondering uh, if his life was going to be coming to an end, if he was sent to prepare the way for Jesus and now Jesus has arrived, is now he just wanting confirmation that he's done what he was told to do and it's just an assurance that he is going to die soon? Another theory is uh, that he had been predicting that judgment was going to be coming. He was saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And again, a big belief at that time was the Messiah was coming to rid them of their political opponents, whether that was the Roman government, whether that was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who they viewed as very corrupt, they were, and that finally the Messiah would come and he was going to bring judgment and damnation on to them. And is John wondering, why hasn't this happened? If you are the Messiah, why haven't you destroyed our enemies and taken your rightful rule as leader of us? Well, I'm not going to tell you because we don't know. I've heard messages and I've read on every single one of those theories. They all have ground. What I want to focus on here is Jesus' response to John. 
And now, John would have been trained. His father was a priest, a rural priest. He would have been trained up as a priest. That was his lineage. That was his bloodline. He would have uh, studied the scriptures. He would have known what we now know as the Old Testament. He, as a prophet, he would have definitely known the prophecies and what the prophets said. So I want to read from Isaiah, some different passages in Isaiah, of what Jesus, remember what Jesus says in verses 4 through 6. I'll read them again. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the, p- the poor. So let's jump into Isaiah. We'll start in chapter 35, verse 5 and 6. You don't have to turn there. We're just going to go through them pretty quick. Isaiah writes, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mule tongue, mute tongue shout for joy. Water and gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Isaiah 26, verse 19. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. And Isaiah 29, 18 through 19. In that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Once more the humble will rejoice in the Lord, the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So I believe Jesus' response to take back to John is to assure him that he is who he says he was. There is no recording of what John's response was or what John did when he heard. So I'm not going to jump into that. But then Jesus follows this by saying, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is one of the theories is that John was doubting him because Jesus wasn't living up to what he had made up in his mind for him to be. Uh, We see that with the disciples as well. The disciples, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going into Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. But in three days, I'll rise again. Peter says, no, God, that can never be. He says, get behind me, Satan. No, this is how it's supposed to be. And he, again, they, just before he goes into Jerusalem, he's saying, I'm going in. They're going to kill me. But in three days, I'll rise again. They're like, yeah, but who's sitting on your right hand and your left hand? Like, who is going to be the most powerful person, second in command? And so in their minds, they're thinking he's going to take over in this political or militaristic way, and they want to be there and make sure they are second in command or very close to it. They are not seeing who Jesus actually is going to be, that what he is defeating is much greater than a political opponent. He is defeating sin, and he is defeating death. And so when he says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me, he's really saying, don't let your preconceived notions about who I am stop you from seeing who I truly am. Don't let what you've made up in your mind about me stop you from seeing who I truly am, who is being revealed to you as the prophets foretold. Now we'll get into what we're actually going to be talking about this evening. And it's this phrase... What makes someone great in Jesus' eyes? He says, there has never been born of a woman of somebody greater than John the Baptist. And I love how he introduces it. I am from Rochester, New York. I can claim many places from where I'm from. 
But when I was a teenager, I lived in the Rochester area and in Rochester. Most of my friends had very Italian last names. That meant that their fathers were middle-aged Italian men with a Western New York accent. If you don't know what that sounds like, you only need to meet one. They all sound the same. And so when I read what Jesus says here to the crowd, that's all I can picture in my head is one of my friend's dad who is getting frustrated at his son and his friend for doing something dumb. So that's not what Jesus is saying, but all I hear is, what did you go out to the wilderness to expect, huh? What did you think was going to happen? What did you go out to see? A, a rod blown to and fro by the wind? Did you want to see a guy in fancy clothes, huh? They add huh to, at the end of everything. Their face slowly gets frustrated. I've seen it a million times. No reason. But Jesus here is saying, what did you go out to see? And he's asking the crowd, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see this, this reed blown to and, fro, to and fro? Meaning, did you just go out to see somebody who's, who's there to entertain you, who's there to amuse you, who's there to like make, make you laugh? Is he, is he there just to make sure that you're uh, entertained, like he just wants you to be happy and so you're going out to see him? No, that was not John's characteristic. John spoke the truth. John told people to repent and to be baptized so the day of judgment was coming. And he didn't mind who he was saying it to. He says, did you expect to see somebody in fancy clothes? That's not who John was. John was dressed in, in camel hair, which was not trendy. Like, that wasn't what the hipsters were doing, was going out living in the wilderness, and they were wearing camel hair, little Carhartt logo. Sorry. No offense to anybody out there. They're a great company. Little Stanley water bottles. He's saying, no, you're going out there and you're going out to see this man, not because of he is anything great, but because of the message that he is proclaiming from the Lord. And he doesn't just, he's not out there just making people happy, obviously. He's in prison now. And so what was it that makes John the Baptist great in Jesus' eyes. If Jesus is saying this is what makes a human being great, we should really pay close attention to that. In 2015, um, Tab and I were up visiting friends up in the uh, Adirondacks in New York for the organization that we had both worked for. And one of the guys who was getting ready to retire at that time uh, he came up to me and he said, uh, he says, man, I heard your dad preach a message in, in uh, a missions conference in 1979 in Germany. My father was a pastor, if you didn't know that. And I was actually there. I was there for that missions conference and heard my dad speak. I was six months old, so I don't remember a ton of the entire trip, let alone that message. But he went through and listed out, your dad preached a message on Matthew 11, what makes a man great? And he went through every single one of my points my dad had. So I called my dad and I said, hey, can I use that message? He said, sure. So the last core team, I'm trying to think, Will and Sarah and Dana, I don't know if anybody else would have been in there, in that, that's still here. Uh, Courtney, I think you were here at the time. Uh, so I preached this message, what makes a man great, that I totally stole from my dad. And so now here we are in Matthew 11, six years later, six and a half years later, I was like, sweet, I already got one. Or should I actually go back through and, and study this text again, which I did, and 
instead of having five points, it's really just one characteristic that really stands out. What makes someone great in Jesus' eyes? The answer is humility. Humility. John's life, in light of what Jesus said about him, when Jesus calls someone great, the common theme that stands out is humility. I was reading one author this last week and uh, said, the reason that humility doesn't stand out to us, even though it is mentioned, the the idea of humility, being humble, uh, pride, the proud, is mentioned over 200 times in Scripture, let alone all the examples of different characters that we see throughout the entire Bible of what happens when you're humble, what happens when you're proud, what happens when God calls you when you're humble and then you get prideful and He knocks you down. Over 200 times, let alone the character studies that you can go into on this. But He said the reason that pride doesn't always stand out to us when we're studying the Scriptures is because of our pride. We don't want to see that. Tell me about how awesome John was because of his camel hair cloak. Don't call out something that I don't want to be confronted with. And I'll be honest, I don't want to preach a message on humility. I almost asked somebody else to come in and speak, somebody that I see as a very uh, humble leader, and then I thought, well, that's weird if I introduce him as this guy's really humble. He's so good at it. Reminds me of a story of a, there was a church that the leadership team realized, like, hey, we really need to put a focus on humility in our church. Like, this is this common theme through the Bible, and how do we do that? So they decided, we'll find the most humble person at church, and we'll give them a pin that says, humble. So they voted, and sure enough, it was this man. Nobody even questioned it. So they call him in, and they're like, hey, we voted on this. This is something that we want to see uh, displayed more of at our church. So they gave him a pin that Sunday afternoon. So he goes home. The next week comes by, and he doesn't know what to do. He's got a pin notifying that he's humble. Does he wear it to church or not? He's like, well, they wanted me to, like, they want this to be an example. So he wore it and came to church. They voted again. They had to take it away. It was a joke. It was a made-up story. (laughs) (laughs) And I honestly thought... I am going to be really happy if I can make it through preaching on humility and not get hit by lightning. I'm going to be just brutally honest, this is very hard for me to do. Uh, I normally don't, my hands don't shake when I'm preaching normally, and they are right now. Uh, Because this is unbelievably confronting, and so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to share the things that stood out to me as I had to be confronted by God's Word in my own life and just invite you to go through it with me. Because when God says this is what makes someone great, and then we start to add up all of these different references, and I was just going to have like a rolling scroll of slides of all the references just on this topic, but they would have killed me up there for having to make all those slides. But this is one of the most talked about things in the entire Bible, is drawing the attention to this contrast between pride and humility. It is something that all of us go through. It is something that all of us battle. I know that because we're humans. Uh, I've had people tell me, you know, Rob, you're really arrogant or you're really prideful in confronting me. And I say, I know. But I'm not dismissing it, but so are you. The difference is 
I can justify my pride. And so if someone's prideful and it demonstrates itself in the same way it does mine, I'm fine with it. I really don't have, I don't, like, you know, so-and-so is pretty prideful. It's like, really? I didn't even notice it. But if your pride shows itself different than mine, you're a prideful, arrogant jerk. I'm not looking at you, Courtney. It's just safe looking at you. I don't know. <laughs> but we tend to be annoyed by people's pride that is different than how we demonstrate our pride. Uh, the pride that we may have grown up around on sports teams or different occupations or whatever it is, we're used to that. It's when somebody demonstrates it that we're not used to, that's when we really have a problem with it. But all of us battle pride. All of us battle how do we remain humble when we are just so awesome in our own eyes. It reminds me of one of my favorite things that you would hear a lot. Uh, you know, I worked at like, three different Bible colleges, and one of my favorite things is when someone's like, well, they're pretty judgmental. It's like, you're judging them! That's one of the most judgmental statements you can say is, they're judgmental. And so it is with pride. When you talk about someone being prideful or who's prideful, it's an incredibly prideful statement. Because the only reason you see that they're prideful is because it's affected your pride. So how do we look at John and the characteristics of humility that he displays and make these points to ourselves? I'm only laughing because I just realized what time it is and I'm just getting started. It's a very difficult problem that we find ourselves in and uh, if you've never read the book Screwtape Letters, I highly encourage you, written by C.S. Lewis. And Screwtape is a demon. Uh, it's fictional, but not really. But he's a demon who is training a younger uh, demon how to tempt people. And these are uh, the letters that he writes to uh, his nephew, this new tempter. And in it, he says, uh, explaining to the temp this new tempter he's training, he says, your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection. By Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility, will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on, through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long, for fear you awake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. And so it's very interesting when you're looking at how do we now add humility to our life. So I will go as quickly as I can. John's characteristics of humility. Three characteristics that we see in John displayed for us to follow after. Uh, number one, John understood who he was and who God was. John understood who he was and who God was. I'm going to turn to John chapter 1. We're going to be skipping through a little bit here about John. So John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. It says, <laughs> My eyes aren't bad. It's very marked up. I'm very sorry. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, that light being Jesus, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Jumping over to verse 15. 
John testified concerning him, and he cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. I think I was supposed to cut out reading earlier. Drop down to verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So what happens here is the religious leaders are getting concerned that there is a person more popular than them that people are listening to, is what really boils down. And so they send these priests and these Levites out to confront him, and they asked him, who are you? And he says, I'm not the Messiah. And then they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you, a pro- are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now when the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. John understood who he was, and he understood who Jesus was. How do we demonstrate pride in our life. William Law, a Protestant preacher in the 1600s, said, humility is nothing else but a right judgment of ourselves. Humility is nothing else but a right judgment of ourselves. Humility is understanding that I am a sinner that is totally only ever sinning against God, and it is only because of what Jesus did, my Savior, that anything I do can be done for His glory. Understand, John recognized who Jesus was starting in the womb. When John's mother was near Mary, it says he leapt in his mother's womb. When John sees Jesus, we'll see in a moment, he immediately blurts out, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John understood who he was and who Jesus was. I love the religious leaders. They're asking him, who are you? Now, again, he is the son of a priest, Zechariah. He is a priest. He is a prophet. He could have gone into his whole resume of why he knows what he's doing, and instead he just says, not the Messiah. So are you Elijah? Nope. And they're getting frustrated because he's not building up his resume. He is just somebody who is pointing people to Jesus. He is just doing what he was told to do by God. Who, what his name is and who he is just doesn't matter to him. It's all about God. The thing that I'm going to go over a couple times, I really wanted to get it stuck in your head, is John says, he must become greater, I must become less. Or he must increase, I must decrease, depending on the version that you have. So the first characteristic, understanding who you are and who God is. Number two, John gave the glory to God, not himself. Understand, John, uh, starting in verse 1, verse 29 of John, he says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the man who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Flip over to chapter 3 of John, starting in verse 22. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anion near Salem, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan the one you testified about. Look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less." John knew he existed to give God the glory in everything. His followers are coming to him and saying, hey, this other guy is also baptizing. The guy you baptize is baptizing. What should we do? And he's like, yeah, that's the point. I'm here just to tell people about him. He must become greater. I must become less. John knew that his goal in life was to point people to Jesus, that he was to be the forewarner, the, the person to come before him. Uh, Wayne Mack in his book, Humility, A Forgotten Virtue, says, it is foolish to become proud because we have nothing to be proud about apart from Christ. Any physical or spiritual blessing that we enjoy are directly from God's hand. The only thing we can claim as our own is sin. John viewed it a joy and a privilege to be able to serve God. Truly humble people consider it a privilege to serve Christ in any capacity. Uh, speaking of humility, one of my favorite, I say that about everyone, books is Jeremiah. It was the book that I was told to read when we first went into church planning. Why? God tells Jeremiah, hey, you're going to be my prophet, and you're not going to have one convert. Not one. Everyone's going to reject you but you're going to preach what I tell you to preach. And Jeremiah does it. Imagine that. That takes humility. Jeremiah is thrown in pits. He's, people hate him. But he viewed it a privilege to do what God has called him to do. John considered it a privilege to do what God had told him to do. There is a big difference between promoting self and promoting God. We have a tendency, if you've noticed, there's this thing, uh, it's becoming popular, it's called social media, if you've seen it. Um, apparently, it has really helped people understand how awesome they are, and they got to tell everybody. And I'm not saying that's only what it's used for, but it kind of is. We really are good, and it is trained in us to promote ourselves constantly. 
we are told to. We are advertised to. We are constantly being told to make sure people know how awesome we are. And we can do that naturally. We can naturally make sure. And I remember uh, working in maintenance at a place and um, working with a guy, and it's great. He, he took pride in his job, but I would hear people describe their jobs. And I would describe my job as a toilet paper holder broke, and I went and fixed it. That's my job. Like, that's my job title. It's like toilet paper holder guy fixer. And that's what I do. Um, they would come up with an unbelievable title that usually incorporated the word engineer into it somehow. And I was like, uh, I didn't know that. Why? Because we naturally take pride. We naturally want to tell people how good we are at something. It always builds into our pride. The opposite of that is always telling people how awesome God is. So there's a big difference between promoting self and promoting God. John gave the glory to God, not himself. And number three, the third characteristic, John submitted to God's will without complaint. John submitted to God's will without complaint. Uh, we've seen differences in this, again, with Jonah. Um, Jonah complained. Jonah did what God told him to do, but there was a lot of complaining involved as well. Uh, we see this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, Wow, that is really small. This is, this is bad. Okay, I have bad eyes. <laughs> Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then Paul goes in to have this mind that was in Christ. And we've gone over to Philippians 2 so many times of what it is to submit yourself to God even to the point of death. And John submitted to God's will without complaint. Understand that it is not recorded that John was upset that he was in prison. It is, John never says anything about, woe is me, I can't believe this happened to me. Does Jesus not know what I've done for him? None of that is recorded. John submitted to God's will without the complaint. We've already talked about John did not fit in with culture. It's why Jesus said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? John pointed everyone to God. He pointed everyone to Jesus. He was constantly doing this from his own disciples and telling his disciples, including John who wrote the book and Andrew, he sends them to Jesus. But he also is telling Herod Agrippa and the, the religious leaders and he's telling the government leaders. He's telling, pointing everyone towards the Messiah. He's pointing everyone towards Jesus, and it would cost him his life. His head would end up on a platter because of his obedience to God. But there is a difference between obeying God and obeying God without complaint. We say this regularly, but when we complain about a situation in life, we attack the very character of God. One of the biggest signs of pride is someone who complains, and I know because I am one. When we complain, we are demonstrating that we are worshiping myself because I am so awesome. How do people not see how awesome I am and treat me the way that I believe I should be treated? What's crazy is as I was writing this this morning and changing some things, I have two children. And at that moment, they decided it was time to hang on my arm and try to spill my coffee and do all of these things 
and I'm getting so frustrated at them. I'm like, guys, back off. Guys, I'll get you food in a minute. You just ate 10 minutes ago. Back off. I'm trying to get this done. And as I'm literally typing this out, I realize they don't know how awesome I am. They don't understand what an important job I have. How dare they? Not my actual thought, but that's what the conviction was raining down on me because that's exactly what was happening as I was typing this out. Is I should be so, not just people should pay attention to me and how awesome I am, but God should really make my life easy because of how awesome I am. And anything that doesn't line up with that, I'm going to let people know. I'm going to let people know when something is wrong Why? Ultimately, because I worship myself. I am my biggest idol. And I'm always going to look out for myself. I'm always looking out for numero uno. But when we complain about a situation in life, we attack the very character of God. What we tell God when we complain is, your plan, your sovereignty doesn't line up with what I want. I must know more than you. How can you do this to me? Don't you understand that's not what I want? And I should get what I want. We then make God just a dispenser of karma that we sh- he should exist just to make us happy, and if he doesn't, we are going to turn our backs on him. When we complain about a situation in life, we attack the very character of God. Complaining and gossip are some of the biggest signs of pride in someone's life. Think of the Israelites when they are leaving Egypt and they just want things better. God rescues them. They pray for 400 years to be rescued. God pulls them out, and it wasn't in the style they wanted. It wasn't in the fashion they wanted. It wasn't in the food they wanted. It says they longed for Egypt. They complained. God destroyed around two million of his own people because they complained. Some of the craziest things, the ground swallowed them. Fire rained down on them. They had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. What was the root cause? Complaining. Why? Because when you complain, you worship yourself. When you complain, you take the place of God. We should take complaining a lot more seriously. Rob. So he confronted Herod Agrippa, which would eventually cost him his life. He did it without complaint. He knew obedience is the only way to respond to God's word. Again, John never complained about being in prison. He just wanted to know if Jesus was who he said he was. We don't know the reasoning behind it. So how do we gain humility? That's a fun question. So I have four things really quickly. I'm lying. It's not going to be quick. Number one. Continually seek God in prayer and time in His Word. Continually seek God in prayer and seek after time in His Word. I'm going to skip the first, nah, we'll go to it, Psalm 10. So I was planning on reading off the back TV, and uh, it's not working, so that's why I didn't have these bookmarked. Psalm 10, verse 4. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Second Chronicles 
a verse you probably know. If my people who are called by name will by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This passage in Second Chronicles was not written to America, by the way. I just wanted to point that out really quick. This is, if my people, no matter where they live, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. That's not your neighbor. That's not the people you see on the news. That's you. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will hear their land. We chase after God for what he wants us to do. We chase after God because when we are not spending time with him in prayer and we're not spending time in his word, it demonstrates a reliance upon self and I don't need him. I'll be in the Bible next Saturday night or Sunday morning. I don't need him during the week. I don't have time for him. Why? I'm just important. I don't need his guidance. It's one of the actual most prideful things we can do is not spend time with God because it demonstrates a reliance upon self. Number two, how do we gain humility? It's craving fellowship with God and his people. Uh, when we, there's this thing that happened in 2020 called COVID, if you remember or were aware. And um, if you didn't know, we ended up meeting outside as a church. And so in March, we stopped, and then um, in May, we built an outdoor stage and we moved outside. So it was only two months, really, that we didn't meet. It was the last weekend of May, and uh, we met. And I'll never forget because I actually uh, got on stage before we sang anything or did anything, and I quoted Psalm 122.1. I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And actually, I'm getting, a, like, getting emotional right now remembering that, because I remember looking out, and people are sitting in their cars, or they brought lawn chairs. And then the first song started up, and I was behind the stage, and people were crying. And people were so excited, and some of you were there, and remember, to see each other. And I remember during the first song that we played, several people had tears running down their face. It had only been two months since we had really been together like that. We are so excited to be back together. And now it's just, if it's convenient, we can go. And I get it, Saturday nights, there's birthday parties and weddings and you name it. Do you crave fellowship with other believers? Do you miss that? Do you want to be with other people? Uh, Colossians 3, 12 through 14, and there's a similar passage throughout the New Testament in Ephesians and different places. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Why? Because he knows how people are. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. We don't have the time to read the entire book of 1 John, but we love God as much as we least like the person in church that we least like. So you can't hate your brother and say that you love God. You are a liar. And so how do we crave fellowship with other people? Another area of pride is exclusively selecting who qualifies to be able to spend time with us. Are you good enough? Did you make the cut for me to spend time with? And we can use all sorts of excuses on this. 
Well, I'm just a private person. Sorry, it's not biblical. Well, Rob, it's easy for you. You're an extrovert. I'm an introvert. In your weakness, he is made strong. We can go through it over and over again. I have a lot of these conversations. The truth is, if we truly are humble, we will crave fellowship with God and his people. Number three, how do we gain humility? Gospel conversations. We talk, I've been talking about this a lot, especially going through Matthew chapter 10 and living on mission and what does that actually mean. If you want to be humbled, start having gospel conversations, meaning having conversations with people that you know or who have told you that they do not have a relationship with God and start having conversations with them. Not preaching at them, having conversations with them, asking simple questions if you've built a relationship with them. Because I'm convinced that this will cause you to grow spiritually more than anything else. Uh, when I talk to people, and it's been really cool, they're not here tonight, um, on our Thursday morning prayer time from 7 to 9 a.m., by the way, everyone's welcome, 7 to 9 a.m. in the back building, we get together and just pray, that's it. Uh, one of the gentlemen has been praying for somebody for a while on their Pi Squared card, and um, this last week they started having a conversation. The person that uh, he was talking to is an atheist. And he asked, hey, by the way, like, you always said you're an atheist. I'm just curious why. She goes, I don't know. Figured out in high school. Just decided to go with it. He goes, do you have a church background? No, none at all. And then they ended up having a two-hour conversation where she was asking all sorts of questions about the Bible. This is somebody we've been praying for for two months. And he walked them through, and he said, uh, I realize I had to run back to the Bible because she asked all sorts of questions, and I didn't know the answer. Why don't we have gospel conversations? A lot of times it's because we're scared we're going to find out we don't know something, and in our minds we know everything. <laughs> so we don't want to have those conversations. What's the number one? Well, I would, but what if I don't know? That's totally fine. That's an awareness. As you spend time with somebody, hopefully you learn to love them and you have compassion on them, and you can't imagine going through life not knowing Jesus as Savior, and so your heart breaks for them, causing you to run and spend time in prayer for these people because you have such a close relationship with God that you can't imagine going through life not knowing Him, and so when you do love somebody and you care for somebody and they don't know Him, it crushes you and causes you to fall on your knees and on your face to pray that they would know Christ. And then you run to God's word, and then you have to say things that we don't like to say, things like, I don't know. We're not good at saying that. So if you want to gain humility, have gospel conversations. And then number four, if you want to gain humility, you must be willing to admit God's infinite wisdom and knowledge. This is a struggle. Going back to, we don't like to say, I don't know. This is a much bigger picture than we can imagine. <clears throat> the book of Job, which I'm always so hesitant to mention. It was almost always, if I had to talk on Job, my car broke down that week. I wish I was kidding. It was also partially due to the cars I owned. But you go through the entire book of Job where everything seems to have gone wrong. Everything, something has happened. It seems it can't get any worse. And it gets worse. And then he's surrounded by a wife who just says, just curse God and die. And he has these friends who aren't great with advice. And it comes to the end and he's questioning God. And you get to Job chapter 38. And I love God's line, Job 38 verse 1. He says, gird up your loins like a man and now I will question you. And then it is almost two chapters of God questioning Job. 
He says things like, do you provide food for the animal that no human has ever seen? No, I do. Do you know what weather patterns you're going to do? Do you fill up the mountains with snow? Do you fill up the oceans with water? No, I do. And God continues. It is one of the most humbling passages that you can read. And then you get to Job 42, verse 1 through 6, and it says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is it? Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Almost the entire book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon saying, listen, I am so wise, I don't get it, and neither do you. In chapter 8 specifically, he talks about how even though we think we know what's going on, we truly just don't. Why? Because God is in control and we are not. And willing to admit that God has infinite wisdom and knowledge doesn't fit our prideful self. Rather, it shows a demonstration of God's sovereignty and our faith in that. So if it's one thing that I want you to take away tonight is John 3, 30. He must become greater, I must become less. He must become greater, I must become less. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you are loving, you have an infinite love. Lord, I thank you that we can know you, that you are a personal, loving God, that you love us enough to send your Son for us. Lord, we thank you that anyone can call out to you and know you. Lord, I thank you for being so loving that you can let a sinful person preach your word about humility. Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts, convict our minds, that we would run to you, that we would run to your word, that we in humility would know the mission that you have for us, and that we would cling to you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.